Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Reading During Recess. I'm Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer. And this is episode 13. We will be talking about a series of unfortunate events, books four and five. So that's The Miserable Mill and The Austere Academy. Two of my favorites. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. We're going to jump into The Miserable Mill first, uh, which was published in April of 2000 by HarperCollins, written by Lemony Snicket, and the fourth book in this wonderful series. And as always, we're going to start you guys off with a summary. So the fourth book begins with the Baudelaire siblings, who we know are Violet, Klaus, and Sonny, on their way to their new home at the Lucky Smells Lumber Mill in the town of Poultryville. And on arrival, they learn that their guardian, who is the owner of the mill, and who we <laughs> learn just goes by Sir, because his name is too long and complicated to pronounce, expects them to work in the mill full-time in exchange for protection from Count Olaf. And they also meet Charles, who is Sir's partner, who is a kind man, but clearly too intimidated by Sir to be of much help. When I was a kid, I had this... <laughs> Throughout, like, the whole series of all the useless, kind people who become involved in their lives, I think Justice Strauss is probably my favorite. But I had this weird crush on Charles. I always pictured him to be very handsome for no reason. He's described as being tall and wearing a blue vest. <laughs> and I just really latched onto that. <laughs> Charles is one of the ones that breaks your heart because he's so sweet and just so useless. Right? And isn't that just like a man? <laughs> it's also super Ooh. interesting because they never really in the book clarify what they mean by partner. Like they're obviously I know. I didn't think about that until this reading, but he irons his shirts. Yeah, like they're definitely business partners, but there's also for sure like a implication that they might be lovers it's <laughs> it's unclear but in the we'll talk about this when we get to the book was better but the uh in the netflix series they're definitely heavily implied to be in a relationship speaking of cirque as we said not only is his name a complete mystery to us so is his face when we first meet him He's described as having this huge cloud of cigar smoke uh, concealing his face at all times. And Lemony Snicket, who narrates the books, tells us, the Baudelaire's never saw it, I never saw it, and you'll never see it either. <laughs> you know what? More evidence that these two are lovers. Charles knows a lot about him and defends his behavior a lot. And it was like, he had a really horrible childhood. Yeah. Which is a really <laughs> empathetic thing to say. Yeah, he's like, you'll have to forgive him. He had a terrible childhood. And Klaus is like, I understand. I'm having one right now. <laughs> Klaus is so sassy. I know, he is. He's... So Charles is very proud of the library that they have on premises at the lumber mill, even though the library only has three books. One is the Paltryville Constitution. One is on the history of the mill. And one is donated by Dr. Georgina Orwell, the local optometrist who works in an I-shaped office building that looks exactly like the tattoo on Count Olaf's ankle. And her office is very close to the lumber mill. The children see it when they're coming in. They are not thrilled, but try to convince themselves that it might be a coincidence. And that evening at the mill dormitory, the Baudelaire's befriend, the optimistic employee Phil, and learn that the workers are paid only in coupons. 
And that they are given just one meal a day as well as gum for lunch. I don't know. I really wish this had come out after Amazon became what it had been. Yeah. Because this would have been such a damning. Feels very obvious to me. But... Yeah. But I don't know if even these guys have to pee in like Gatorade bottles. But the job is grueling and it is dangerous. And all three kids, including baby Sunny, are expected to participate in debarking, operating heavy machinery, slicing the boards. And sweet Sunny, who is too small to use the adult-sized debarker, uses her teeth. So the Baudelaire's work for days at the mill with no sign of Olaf until the cruel foreman, Flacatono, trips Klaus and breaks his glasses. Foreman Flacatono is new to the lumber mill, and I don't know, what do we know about him, Terry? We know that he is hated by the employees at the mill. He arrived after the last foreman suddenly quit. He is described as being clearly bald, but making an effort to conceal his baldness with a wig that looks like large white worms, <laughs> which is really hard to picture and really unpleasant. And he wears a surgical mask ahead of his time, yeah. King, that looks very bulgy because I think that it kind of squashes his nose. Foreman Flagatono is a deeply unpleasant man, evidenced by the fact that he fully trips Klaus, <laughs> mm -hmm. I get, like a fifth grade bully, and uh, causes him to stumble and break his glasses. So Charles kindly offers to take Klaus to the optometrist, and of course the only optometrist in town is Dr. Orwell of the eye-shaped office. And the siblings, Violet and Sonny in particular, are very scared, but Klaus returns unharmed that evening, but is behaving very strangely. He seems dazed and responds to Violet and Sonny with yes sir, and even messes up their names a few times. So Klaus's behavior remains the same the next day, and Foreman Flacatono orders him to operate the stamping machine at the mill, and Klaus has no training. In a horrible accident, Klaus drops the stamping stone on Phil and destroys Phil's leg. It is probably one of the most gruesome parts of the book. We'll give you guys more deets when we yeah. go over favorite parts. It's really upsetting. And then Foreman Flacatono shouts that the damaged machine cost an inordinate amount of money, and then Klaus appears to come out of his trance, and he defines the word inordinate, as Klaus loves to do. He loves to define long words. Showing that he is truly back to himself. Yes. And he explains that he has no memory of what happened after going to the optometrist the day before. And moments later... Flacatono trips him and once again breaks his glasses. This poor kid. Klaus is sent back to Dr. Orwell, but this time Violet and Sunny insist on coming with him. And so in the I-shaped building, they meet the seemingly friendly and professional Dr. Georgina Orwell. And she takes Klaus and sends the girls to sit in the waiting room, telling them that her receptionist, Shirley, will give them some cookies while they wait. Uh, but Violet and Sonny immediately recognize Shirley as Count Olaf and realize that he is in disguise and in cahoots with Dr. Orwell, who is hypnotizing Klaus. The siblings leave with Klaus now in a similar trance to the one he was in before, and they all return to the lumber mill and find a memo from Sir telling them that they will be placed in Shirley's care if they cause any more accidents at the mill. 
So that night, after putting Klaus to bed, Violet and Sunny go to the Mills library to try to figure out how they are going to release Klaus from his hypnosis and foil Olaf's plan. And this is a really common recurring theme in the books, of course, is going to a library to try to fix your problems. And they find the book that was written by Georgina Orwell and <laughs> open the table of contents to find a chapter titled Hypnosis and Mind Control. And unfortunately, the book is incredibly dense and complex and Violet struggles a lot to read it since she is not the researcher and the wordsmith that Klaus is. But through context clues, Violet realizes that Klaus has been hypnotized using a command word and that he can be unhypnotized with a different specific word. But just then, the sisters hear the sound of the saw at the mill starting back up, so they run to see what's going on. Unfortunately, back at the mill, they find Charles, Sir's partner. Sweet Charles. <laughs> he is strapped to a log. It's not how anyone wants to start their morning. And the hypnotized Klaus is about to push the log through the buzzsaw. And Klaus is being instructed to do this by foreman Lucatano. And so the girls go back and forth with him using the command word lucky to influence Klaus. They realize that lucky is the, the command word, but they still don't know what the word will be to unhypnotize him. So suddenly, Shirley and Dr. Orwell arrive, command that, commanding that Klaus stop listening to his sisters. And Charles is seconds away from being diced when Violet realizes that the word to unhypnotize Klaus is inordinate. So Klaus becomes unhypnotized, but Charles, of course, is still tied to a log that is in the path of a running buzzsaw. Things get very exciting very quickly. Dr. Orwell, who carries a cane, unsheathes it to reveal that it is actually a sword, and she and Sunny duel. And it's Orwell's sword versus Sunny's teeth in one of my favorite parts of the book. And meanwhile, Violet is grabbed by Shirley and Flucatono, leaving Klaus to save Charles, which means that he now needs to step into Violet's shoes and invent a device. And he comes up with something similar to a fishing rod that casts a piece of gum. And if I'm understanding this correctly, the gum moves the whole log. Yeah, it, it must be some pretty strong gum. Yeah, it's, it's a little unrealistic. But you know what? I'll allow it. This does take place in a universe where children work at lumber mills and there's a king of Arizona. So Klaus manages to move the log and in doing so Charles as well out of the path of the saw and saves his life. And in that moment, Mr. Poe and Sir entered the room and startle Dr. Orwell, who takes a step backwards right into the path of the spinning saw. Woo. I yep. love that part. Me too. It's one of the very rare satisfying moments where a villain gets defeated. And nobody, it's the first one where nobody dies. Well, she dies, doesn't she? It's no one we care about dies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. she definitely dies. Oh, no, she's dead. No, it's the first one because I was trying to remember it before I started rereading it. And I was convinced that Charles dies. Because yeah. I remembered that he gets trapped to the log. And just because it's very formulaic, you know, with the rest of them, um, I thought I remembered that he had been killed. But he is not. He is saved. And instead, it's Dr. Orwell who steps into a buzzsaw, which is an amazing image. I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't sound so, like, excited about it. 
But it comes, like, completely out of nowhere because all of the books are depressing. Mm-hmm. But none of them are quite as vicious as this one. Yeah. I mean, this book is written for, like, nine-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the most disturbing ones, I think. So the whole crew winds up back in Sir's office at, where Shirley, who is, of course, Count Olaf, tries to claim that she and Foreman Flucatono were also under hypnosis and try to convince Sir to hand the Baudelaire's over to her. But when Mr. Poe asks Shirley to reveal her ankle as proof that she is not Count Olaf, Shirley and Flucatono reveal themselves to be <laughs> Olaf and one of his henchmen, specifically the bald man with the long nose. And they throw a book through the window and escape. So claiming that the Baudelaire's are too much trouble, Sir tells Mr. Poe that they are no longer welcome at Lucky Smell's lumber mill. And that's where the book ends. That's so sad. I know. All right, so this is definitely one of my favorites of the series because it really is, honestly, just the most gruesome. Yeah, it's... I think it's definitely not the most depressing because, as I said, I think it has the happiest ending out of all of them. But in terms of just sheer bloodshed... Yeah, I think it's definitely the most violent. I would... Yeah, oh, I 100% I agree. guess the Carnivorous Carnival, though, is actually... Ooh, the Carnivorous Carnival is extremely violent. That's true. But before we jump into anything else, let's dig a little bit deeper into some of our favorite parts. I did want to share with you guys the scene where Phil is crushed by the stamping stone. He's in the middle of telling Violet and Sunny about how they need to look on the bright side when suddenly... Crash! Ah! <laughs> Phil fell to the floor in mid-sentence, his face pale and sweaty. Of all the terrible noises to be heard at the Lucky Smells Lumber Mill, this one was the most terrible by far. The thunderous stamping sound had been cut off by a wrenching crash and a piercing shriek. The stamping machine had gone horribly wrong, and the huge flat stone had not been brought down where it was supposed to be brought down, on the bundle of boards. Most of the stone had been brought down on the string machine, which was now hopelessly smashed, but part of it had been brought down on Phil's leg. And then Foreman Flucatono moves the stone and everyone crowds around to see the damage the cage part of the string machine was split open like an egg and the string had become completely entwined and entangled and i simply cannot describe the grotesque and unnerving sight the words grotesque and unnerving here mean twisted tangled stained and gory of poor phil's leg it made violet and sunny's stomachs turn to gaze upon it and then of course the incredible phil says well he said this isn't too bad My left leg is broken, but at least I'm right-legged. That's pretty fortunate. (laughs) Do you want to talk about Sonny's duel with Dr. Orwell? So, yeah, one of the weirdest parts of the whole book (laughs) is Sonny getting into a duel with Dr. Orwell. Like we said, Sonny's weapon is, of course, her four very sharp teeth, and Dr. Orwell's weapon is a sword, which she wields at a baby. So that's the (laughs) kind of woman she is. (laughs) Then Lemony Snicket says, but Sunny, being only an infant, had no sword. And that's honestly on her. She should start carrying one. It's kind of embarrassing. You've been almost murdered three times now, so. (laughs) We're on book four, please. Actually, yeah, can you imagine how much quicker this series would have been over if someone would just give one of the Baudelaire orphans a sword? Yeah. No, but they wouldn't use it. They'd, like, debate whether or not it was ethical. That is their problem. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so Sunny, being only an infant, had no sword. She had only her four sharp teeth, and looking Dr. Orwell right in the eye, she opened her mouth and pointed all four at this despicable person. 
There is a loud clink noise that a sword makes when it hits another sword, or in this case, a tooth. And whenever I hear it, I am reminded of a sword fight I was forced to have with a television repairman not long ago. Sunny, however, was only reminded of how much she did not want to be sliced to bits. <laughs> and uh, Sunny, I think we can say she wins that duel because she's not she the one who ends up sawed in a million pieces. No, she sure doesn't. But, you know, on the subject of this book being, you know, a little bit gruesome, Dr. Orwell is ready to go there. On page 175, Klaus manages to save Charles from the buzzsaw. But when Sunny turned to look, Dr. Orwell saw her chance. With a swing of one of her big, ugly boots, she kicked Sunny to the ground and held her in place with one foot. Then, standing over the infant, she raised her sword high in the air and began to laugh a loud, horrible snarl of a laugh. I do believe, she said, cackling, that there will be an accident at Lucky Smell's lumber mill after all. Yeah, she is terrifying. <laughs> she was going to spear her. For no she reason, was... either. Sunny... Sunny is by far the easiest Baudelaire to catch. Yeah. <laughs> and probably the worst one, because it will take Sunny the longest to come of age, and ideally you would get Violet if mm-hmm. you were going to have one of the three. But, like, don't put Sunny out of the running so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so awful when she kicks Sunny to the ground and holds her in place with a foot. Yeah. Sunny is an infant. Yeah, doctor. Right there in front of God and everybody. Dr. Orwell is one of the most evil people that we encounter, and she also gets very, very, very little backstory in the books. Like, in the yeah. in the Netflix series, they elaborate on her and give her more of a backstory, but in the books, she's basically just this, like, maniacal sociopath, or I don't know if yeah. that's the right word. But, you know, like, and she's not in disguise, like everyone else who he works with she doesn't appear to have been part of olaf's life at any point before this she's just an eye doctor (laughs) not to you know not to be dismissive of her medical training not just an eye doctor she's also a sociopath (laughs) but uh she also gets as we've said probably the best death in the entire series oh and one of my other favorite scenes is like literally so short it's one line I just, I really love the character of Phil, the eternal optimist whose leg gets mauled. Mm -hmm. And even more so at the end when there is the possibility (laughs) that the workers might rise up and overthrow Sir. When Phil uh, mentions as they pass in the office while the Baudelaire's are on their way out. Oh, and by the way, I've been reading this book, The Paltryville Constitution. I don't understand all of the words, but it sounds like it's illegal to pay people only in coupons. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, sir said quickly. Fight the power. Which I love that, like, they didn't know that was illegal. Yeah. I always felt like the implication was just sort of that they had no other options. Yeah. But yeah. I love the idea that they've been going through life, like, guess this is it. <laughs> yeah, can we talk a little bit about the premise of the lumber mill? Because it is, it's super weird. They, they all live there. They all live You're, there. Like, it has a dormitory. They're not really allowed to have visitors. Phil says at one point that no one has knocked on the door in, like, ten years. Yeah. Implying that all of them have just been at the lumber mill for ten years. Right. They only get they're one meal. they gum for lunch. Yeah, they have Sorry. gum for lunch. They only have one meal a day. And as we said, they're paid only in coupons. No Which money. Which Charles doesn't know. He doesn't? No, Charles at one point comes by and gives the, 
So first, Charles doesn't even know that the kids are working at the lumber mill. Yeah. Um, and then when he finds out, he's like, oh, my God. Like, you know, we'll put a stop to this. And then Sir is like, no, we won't. And Charles is like, oh, I guess we won't. And then he's but he's he's kind, if useless, and swings by the dormitory at one point and is like, I got you guys some beef jerky. And they were like, oh, awesome. We'll share this with the rest of our impoverished co-workers. <laughs> and Charles is like, oh, that's real nice of you. But I don't know if they'll need any because they got a coupon for beef jerky last week so they probably bought a ton of it (laughs) he just doesn't know it's my favorite premise because it's worse than being paid in anything else yeah because coupons explicitly require money to use yeah the working conditions it kind of feels like an allegory almost feels a lot like 1984 yeah You know, with Georgina Orwell next door. Mm-hmm. But Wild. it's a nightmarish existence. And we can only hope that Phil uses his good leg to kick Sir to the ground. And, and we do. Spoiler alert. We do meet Phil again in another book. Do you we remember? We do? I forgot about that. Yeah. He's in um, the Grim Grotto. Is he in the hotel? No, he's in Oh, the... he's in the Grim Grotto. Yeah, he's in the submarine. So now it's time for our favorite segment. <laughs> and now a word from us kids. We will be sharing some reviews that were written by kids for kids posted on the Dogo Books website for The Miserable Mill. Twilight 04 said, the book is so sad, but amazingly impressive. It's like impressive, but the first word is empress. I really recommend this book, but I do agree with the 10 and up because some kids couldn't handle. But I love Lemony Snicket's books. He has outdone himself. Cute. <laughs> Some kids can't handle. I don't know if you guys remember Lawsy one two three from our mm. last episode, but Lawsy was very distressed by what was going on in books one through three, and she's back for book four. She left a, another one sentence <laughs> review for us. She says, "It is horrible what their caregiver does to them," and you know what? She's right. Yeah. I love how she's just reading these, just keeps reading them, even though they frighten and upset her. It's true. It's succinct. um, And it's about the plot of the whole series. Yeah. Honestly, we could apply this to books one through 13. Yes. But Anem says, spoiler alert, when the guy was in the log cutting machine, I couldn't stop reading. This is a very miserable one indeed. (laughs) The guy's in the log cutting machine for like three pages. He is he is really in the log cutting machine. And you really don't know. No, like you when don't. when I was trying to remember how it ended, I was pretty sure we lost him. Yeah. He gets damn close. It's implied they get the soul. And it's also a very touching scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very emotional because the Baudelaire orphans really love all the people in their lives who do fuck all for them. And they really do care about Charles. And they're terrified that they're about to lose him. And when Klaus manages to save him, Charles looked at Klaus and his eyes filled with tears. And when Sunny turned to look, she saw that Klaus was crying too. Aww. You ready for the next? You want to read the next one? Yes. Meanwhile, Addison says, I have not got to read it yet. <laughs> But that is the next book in the series that I'm going to read. So I hope that it is great and that one character named Count Ulf gets a whole lot nicer and stops trying to steal the kid's fortune. But from what I know in the book so far, that probable will never happen. (laughs) 
We got a fill over here. We got an optimist. Yes. I love that. I really thought she was going to say, I hope the Count Ulf gets captured and apprehended. But no, she goes the extra mile. I hope Count Ulf is rehabilitated and released back into society. (laughs) Also, I love the number of kids who call him Count Ulf. It's a really common misspelling on the internet, Count Ulf. So on the subject of the miserable mill... We wanted to continue our conversation that we had in episode 12 about gender in the book. I found this interesting article written by Tyson Pugh. Terry, any chance that name rings a bell for you? Um, no, should it? So Tyson Pugh is a scholar of medievalism. Oh my gosh! And he wrote a textbook that Terry and I used in college in one of our classes. I forgot. Which one was it? I think it was just called Medievalism. Was it the blue one? Yeah. So that was fun. So Tyson Pugh is a medievalist scholar, and he wrote an article that was published in Children's Literature in 2008, and his article was called, What Then Does Beatrice Mean? Hermaphroditic Gender, Predatory Sexuality, and Promiscuous Illusion, and Daniel Handler slash Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. And so in his article, he talks about the various ways in which gender and sex and sexuality are talked about or hinted at or implied in the books. And one of the things he talks about is the way that the series dismantles traditional expectations of gendered behaviors for boys and girls. For example, Tyson Pugh says... When Mr. Poe admonishes Violet for picking a lock, telling her that, quote, nice girls shouldn't know how to do such things, end quote, Klaus defends his sister and argues for a more expansive view of female activities. Quote, my sister is a nice girl, Klaus says, and she knows how to do all sorts of things. These scenes, and the ones similar to them throughout a series of unfortunate events, liberate the Baudelaire children from constraining constructions of masculinity and femininity. So, like, one example of the way that Snicket kind of deconstructs these traditional constructions of gender is in The Miserable Mill. He refers to a hypothetical situation of someone's brother's dollhouse, you know, and that's um, not the only time when he talks about boys playing with dolls in the books. Gender roles in the series are additionally undermined through the reversals of gendered norms that have already been reversed. Violet may be coded as somewhat masculine due to her inventing skills, and Klaus may be coded as somewhat feminine due to his inveterate reading, but their respective tendencies in regard to gendered activities do not limit their potential to act in new ways. At the conclusion of The Miserable Mill, the reader sees that Violet and Klaus can succeed in each other's accustomed domains. Quote, it was lucky, Violet admitted quietly, that Klaus invented something so quickly, even though he's not an inventor. It was lucky, Klaus admitted quietly, that Violet figured out how to end my hypnosis, even though she's not a researcher. Gendered categories are rendered meaningless for the Baudelaire children who express the freedom and agency to strip themselves of the prescriptive cast of gender's historical enactments. So now we're going to take you guys to book five, The Austere Academy, and we're going to give you a summary. So book five begins with Mr. Poe dropping the Baudelaires off at their new home, which is a boarding school called Proofrock Preparatory. They meet Carmelita Spatz, who is described as a, what is it? Rude, violent, filthy little girl, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> She's one of my favorite characters in the whole I series. Know. I love She's her. She's excellent. Carmelita Spatz calls them cake sniffers. 
And soon afterwards, they meet Vice Principal Nero, who is a <laughs> cruel and strange man <laughs> who plays the violin terribly, but considers himself a genius. And he tells them all about the school's odd rules. They will have to sleep in a small tin shack, which they later learn is infested with crabs and fungus, because they have no parent to sign their dormitory permission slip. And every student is expected to attend Nero's nightly six-hour violin recitals. Klaus and Violet will each go to class, but Sonny will work in the administrative building as Nero's assistant. Then he also tells them about some truly tremendous punishments that students can have at the school for misbehaving. For instance, if they miss one of his six-hour violin recitals, they'll be forced to buy him a bag of candy and watch him eat it. If they are in the administrative building, which students are not allowed in, they will have their silverware taken away from them. And if they are late for mealtimes, they will have their hands tied behind their back and will need to eat their food like a dog. <laughs> and this leads to one of my favorite exchanges in probably the entire book, where he's telling them that since nobody can teach a baby anything, Sonny will have to work for him in his office and he tells all three of them if either of you are late for class or if Sonny is late for work your hands will be tied behind your back during meals you'll have to lean down and eat your food like a dog of course Sonny will always have her silverware taken away because she will work in the administrative building where she's not allowed <laughs> i love that oh and he tells them meals are served promptly at breakfast time lunch time and dinner time and if you're late, on the dot and if you're late you're in trouble Yes. Oh, I forgot. No, <laughs> it's if they're late for class, they have their hands tied behind their back. If they're late for mealtimes, uh, we take away your cups and glasses and your beverages will be served to you in large puddles. <laughs> I love this. I think that this book is probably one of the most absurd. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I think it's the most absurd. Which is why it is, of course, in my opinion, the funniest and the best. It's one of the funniest not just in terms of one-liners, although it does have some really funny one-liners, but also just conceptually and plot-wise. I think, like you said, it's it's one of the mm -hmm. funniest because it's just so <laughs> bizarre. So the children leave the administrative building, and I believe they... Does he make an exception for them about having their silverware taken away? Yes, because it, because it was their first day. Yes, that's right. But he's uh, like, don't let it happen again. Yeah, except, of course, unless you were sunny. They end the day in the dismal tin shack that uh, had been described to them, which is filled with snapping territorial crabs, dripping tan fungus, and ugly wallpaper. So the next day at lunch, um, the Baudelaire's are being teased by Carmelita Spatz, who is making fun of them for being orphans who live in the, quote, orphan shack. She starts a chant that goes, are you ready, Terry? Are we going to do it? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Cake-sniffing orphans, orphans in the orphans. Do we want to try that again? Yeah. Okay, maybe we should rehearse this. How do you think it's... Cake-sniffing orphans in the orphan shack. Cake-sniffing the orphans in the orphan Why did you slow down? I Because you slowed down. Okay. Cake-sniffing orphans in the orphan shack. Cake-sniffing orphans in the orphan shack. I think there's a lack. Yeah, I think that's the problem. <laughs> we still have to share it with them. Yeah. Let's try it to clarify there is a delay. One more time. Cake, Cake sniffing, sniffing orphans in the orphan shack. shack. All right, I give up. <laughs> so anyway... Carmelita Spatz leads the cafeteria in a chant of cake-sniffing orphans in the orphan shack. 
And Duncan and Isadora Quagmire defend the siblings and eat lunch with the Baudelaire's. And that is when the Baudelaire's learn that Duncan and Isadora are two of a set of three triplets. Third triplet, Quigley, tragically died in a fire along with um, their parents. And when... Which, can I just say quickly, the Baudelaire's don't really seem to catch on to at all. No, they're just like, huh, interesting. Okay, anyway, back yeah. to our shack. In the, <laughs> in the Netflix series, there's this whole thing with a spyglass, so they're instantly like, oh my god, they're yeah. connected. But in this one, Duncan and Isadora are like, yeah, we're also about to inherit an enormous fortune, and our parents also died in a mysterious fire. And... The Baudelaire's are like, man, that sucks. Small world, right? <laughs> They're really bright kids, so I, I don't know what's going on here. But Yeah. But in addition to learning that the Quagmires are slated to inherit a fortune of sapphires, they also learn that Duncan enjoys journalism and research, and Isadora is a poet who mainly writes rhyming couplets. And Sarah, I'm going to ask you, you're a poet. What do you think of Isadora's rhyming couplets? Okay. I feel rude saying this because she's a child, but in the book and the Netflix series, I primarily find her and her couplets very irritating. Right? She says them with so much pride is yeah. the problem. And everyone is, and by everyone, I mean their only friends, the Baudelaire's, are like, wow, that's really good. It's like, it's not that hard to rhyme two lines. It really isn't. And I'm going to be honest, a lot of them don't even have like coherent meter no. They don't have a great rhythm to them. She'll also bust them out at, like, the least helpful times. That you is know? true. They'll be, like, running from Count Olaf, and she's like, I know what could help. <laughs> a couplet. Klaus and Sunny and Violet's strengths are all life-saving in various instances. And then Isadora, Isadora shows up with her damn poems and is like, and it's, also me. For? Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> They're not very impressive. And it's really her pride in them. That's what makes it... Because the Baudelaire's are, like, in addition to being accomplished in useful ways, are also very humble. Yes. And also, I'm not saying that you have to be good at art to make it, because you definitely don't. You should absolutely write poems. Even if you're not good at writing poems, you should draw and dance and sing, even if you're not good at it, because it's part of life. But here's the thing, you're going to need to maybe keep your mouth a little bit more shut if what you're producing isn't that impressive. Right. And I'm going to be honest, I was not blown away by Isadora's rhyming couplets. Also, it's not the most impressive type of poem. Like, honestly, the only thing that's worse is, like, those ones that you learn in third grade. What are they called? Where it's like your name down oh, the side. Oh, acrostic poems? Acrostic poems, you know? Yeah. That would have been the only thing worse, I'm going to be honest. If it's it were true. limericks, that would be cool. If she were doing limericks, that would be cool. And that... I write limericks. And, you know, your limericks are much more impressive than her couplets. Thanks. I'm also an adult. Yeah. But you know what? Isadora was written by an adult, and he could have done yeah. a better job. I will say <laughs> one more thing. As... <laughs> As someone who writes poems and knows a lot of poets, none of us just enter conversations reciting <laughs> our own work. That's so weird. Anyway, anyway gross. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna abandon our tirade against an imaginary child <laughs> and continue with this plot summary. 
the children start their days at Proof Rock Prep, where classes are just as bad as their living situation. Violet and Klaus are in different classes. Violet, along with Duncan, is in Mr. Remora's class, where the expectation is just, from what I can tell, a, it's, it's interesting. I guess it's <laughs> one long English class. Uh, but all they need to do is take detailed notes on the incredibly boring stories that their teacher tells. And when I say stories, I mean there are things like one day I got up, I went to the grocery store, I got a carton of milk, I went home, I poured it in a glass, and I drank it. And then they're tested on these. <laughs> so there are grades. And meanwhile, Clausen is Adora's teacher, uh, Mrs. Bass, which I love because Remoras and Bass are both fish. <laughs> <laughs> is obsessed with the metric system and makes her students take endless measurements of random objects, which is actually a unit that I do. <laughs> really? For first grade. I mean, we measure, and I have this box. It's like the measurement box, and but they're really excited about it, but they're six. <laughs> and also, it's not all year, and it's not all day. Yeah. And it's also not And you the don't have to system. memorize the measurements. Yes, and it's not the metric system. Meanwhile, Sunny is being forced to not only staple all of Nero's paperwork and answer the phone, which are jobs and materials made for adults, but she also has to make her own staples. Oh, yeah. I love that. Very dangerous. And there's also no weekends at Prefraud Prep. And when I heard that, that was when I was like, I think I'd rather be dead than go to this school. Life is hellish, but good thing is that it can always get worse. Yep. So after the first week, Count Olaf finally arrives, uh, and this time he's claiming to be the new gym teacher, Coach Genghis. And his disguise includes high-top running shoes that cover his tattoo and a turban to hide his one eyebrow. I love that he's never willing to go whole hog, because in a lot of the scenes where he is caught, he's asked to reveal some kind of thing that's covering the ankle tattoo. And I think there is a time when he uses makeup. Yeah, and the reptile And then just never does it again. Yeah. yeah, I don't understand that. It's like, why not do both? Yeah. You know, like, fine, wear the high top shoes, wear the peg leg, and then underneath it, wear the makeup. He shaved the eyebrow once and it worked like a charm. <laughs> and I guess it grew back and he was like, not that again. He's not willing to commit and it costs him in the end. But, you know, big eyebrows are in, Terry, so. They are. I would not shave at this point. I've worked way too hard for these babies. <laughs> and I know that this podcast is a not a visual medium, but just to be clear, my eyebrows are not that impressive. Sarah, continue. <laughs> oh, sorry. Now I'm just picturing Count Olaf, like, on, like, a Glossier Instagram ad. <laughs> the boy brow. <laughs> yeah. And it is boy brow, because there is singular just the one. That's true. <laughs> anyway, so the Baudelaire's try a new tactic, and instead of instantly showing all their cards, they <laughs> decide to pretend not to recognize Olaf, because they think maybe that'll give them some extra time to figure out what's going on. Uh, but they try to convince Vice Principal Nero that Coach Genghis is suspicious, but he doesn't believe them. And so the next day, Carmelita arrives delivering a message that the siblings are to meet Coach Genghis outside that evening as part of his, quote, special orphan running exercises, or SOAR for short. <laughs> Coach Genghis makes them paint a large luminous track in the grass and then run laps all night in the dark. Which is a 
odd thing to do. Normally, Olaf's plans reveal themselves fairly quickly. Yeah. But in this case, they're completely baffled. And of course, by the next day, the orphans are absolutely exhausted because these things go on all night and then they have class throughout the next day. And they spend nine nights doing sore, after which point they are so tired that they obviously begin to start doing really poorly in their classes and in Sunny's case at her administrative duties. So they are completely exhausted and the siblings go to Vice Principal Nero to tell him outright that Coach Kingus is Count Olaf, but Vice Principal Nero does not believe them. And claiming that the siblings are failing their classes, he tells Violet and Klaus that they will each take a comprehensive exam set by their teachers the next morning. And Sonny will have to produce a huge supply of homemade staples. And if the students fail, then they will be expelled from the school and handed over to Coach Gingas, who has volunteered to be their guardian. And I've lost count of how many kids I've handed over to our gym teacher. <laughs> I love the custody situation in this universe. I know. I love that it's not, it doesn't go to Mr. Poe at all. No. It's like the principal, the vice principal. I know. It's just like anyone who volunteers to raise them. They're like, yeah, probably. Sure, why not? It's weird, too, because at the beginning, remember Justice Strauss couldn't raise them because she wasn't family? Yeah. And then Mr. Poe just takes them to a lumber mill. (laughs) (laughs) And then a boarding school. Oh, we forgot to tell you guys that the motto of the boarding school is... Memento mori, which in Latin means, remember, you will die. So that's the kind of place this is. So faced with being handed over to Count Olaf, the Baudelaire's realize that they are going to need time to study. But of course, this is time that they don't have because they, they need to complete their sore duties that night. So the Quagmires come up with a plan and offered to pose as Violet and Klaus to give them time to study. And... <laughs> They plan to bring along a bag of flour to serve as Sunny, which they will drag along behind them. So they leave the Baudelaire's their notebooks from class because each of them attend a class with a different Baudelaire. And they decide that Klaus will read the notebooks aloud while Violet and Sunny make staples. So the next day, the Baudelaire's pass their exams with flying colors. But immediately afterwards, Coach Genghis arrives carrying Violet's ribbon, Klaus's glasses, and the destroyed flower sack that had been disguised as Sunny. He claims that the Quagmires had posed as the siblings the night before and claims that they are currently being punished by whisking in the kitchen, where they will whisk and whisk until they are simply whisked away. Very ominous. I love that line. I know. (laughs) It's probably the coolest thing Olaf ever says. Yeah. So Nero expels the Baudelaire's, because he says that they cheated by pretending to be two places at once. And just then, Mr. Poe arrives with bags of candy that the siblings owe the vice principal. (laughs) To be clear, they owe him these candies because they've missed all of his violin recitals. While Um, they were doing school-mandated sore activities. That's right. When the Baudelaire's insist that Coach Genghis remove his shoes and turban, Olaf instead, surprisingly, just runs away. Which he does at the end of every book, but normally not this fat. But what he forgot is that he's been beefing up 
these orphans for the last week and a half. Yeah, so they can run. So now that the orphans are truly jacked, they pursue him. And Violet and Sunny manage to pull off his turban and his shoes, which, of course, reveal his one eyebrow and the tattoo on his ankle. At this time, they suddenly realize that the two white-faced women, who are two of Olaf's hench women, and who had been posing as cafeteria workers, have captured the quagmires and are forcing them into Olaf's car. And Klaus manages to reach the car just in time to hear Duncan try to tell him what he and Isadora had learned about Olaf from their research in the library. But he only has time to throw Klaus their commonplace books, which they keep all their um, research in, and to sh- and Isadora keeps her poems in. Can you imagine? She's out there too trying to throw hers, like, don't forget mine. <laughs> You're gonna want this. <laughs> but anyway, Duncan tragically only has time to throw Klaus the books and to shout three letters VFD before the white-faced women stop him. So Olaf pulls Klaus away from the car door and grabs the notebooks before speeding off with the quagmires, leaving the Baudelaire's devastated and terrified for their friends. It's one of the most frightening endings of any of the Mm -hmm. books, I think. All of the stories end with an attempted kidnapping, but this is the first to end with a successful one. That's right. Fortunately, these children are less charming than the Baudelaire's, so frankly, I'm not like super sad but it is a bummer for like the only people who have been kind to the consistently kind and also a little bit helpful to the Baudelaire's mm-hmm. to be just immediately <laughs> kidnapped that sucks it's, it's it's really pretty shitty so there's a lot of great moments in the austere academy like we said it's kind of one of the funniest books in the series i think just in terms of its absurdist humor so we're going to share a few of our favorite moments with you guys i mean we got to start with the description of vice principal nero who is probably one of (laughs) the most repugnant characters in a series that revolves around vile behavior and literally includes a man who regularly tries to murder three children one of whom is an infant But Nero is still the worst. (laughs) Yeah, he's just so awful. Because his awfulness is not, unlike Count Olaf, it's not motivated by anything. Like, Count Olaf's awfulness is motivated by greed. And, unlike, people like Mr. Poe are awful, but it comes from a place of incompetence rather than cruelty. But yeah. But Vice Principal Nero is getting nothing out of this except just being the absolute worst person imaginable. He does suck so hard. It'll be nice for you guys to be able to envision that. So here you go. The children stepped into the office and got a better look at the man who had mocked them. He was dressed in a rumpled brown suit that had something sticky on its jacket, and he was wearing a tie decorated with pictures of snails. His nose was very small and very red, as if someone had stuck a cherry tomato in the middle of his splotchy face. He was almost completely bald, but he had four tufts of hair, which he had tied into little pigtails with some old rubber bands. (laughs) Oh, the Baudelaire's had never seen anybody who looked like him before, and they weren't particularly interested in looking at him any further. But his office was so small and bare that it was difficult to look at anything else. I just loved that his tie had pictures of little snails. Right? On a different person, that could be very fashionable. Right, none of those things on their own are deal breakers, except for maybe the rubber bands. That... Yeah, I'm sorry. The cowardice of the Netflix version for not including the rubber bands. I know, right? Although I do think Nero 
is very well cast and excellent in the Netflix he is. series. He's so unlikable. Sarah, you got any more for us? Yes. Lemony Snicket likes to give us little explanations of idioms. And in chapter three, he tells us about the phrase making a mountain out of a molehill. So he tells us, The expression making a mountain out of a molehill simply means making a big deal out of something that is actually a small deal, and it is easy to see how this expression came about. Molehills are simply mounds of earth serving as condominiums for moles, and they have never caused anyone any harm except for maybe a stubbed toe if you are walking through the wilderness without any shoes on. Mountains, however, are very large mounds of earth and are constantly causing problems. They are very tall, and when people try to climb them, they often fall off or get lost and die of starvation. Sometimes two countries fight over who really owns a mountain, and thousands of people have to go to war and come home grumpy or wounded. And of course, mountains serve as homes to mountain goats and mountain lions who enjoy attacking helpless picnickers and eating sandwiches or children. So when someone is making a mountain out of a molehill, they are pretending that something is as horrible as a war or a ruined picnic, when it is really only as horrible as a stubbed toe. And so we get that whole explanation, and then he explains why he is telling us about this. He says, When the Baudelaire orphans reached the shack they were, where they were going to live, however, they realized that Vice Principal Nero had not been making a mountain out of a molehill at all when he had said that the shack was a dismal place. If anything, he had been making a molehill out of a mountain. It was true that there were three bales of hay instead of beds, and there was absolutely no fresh fruit in sight. But Vice Principal Nero had left out a few details in his description, and it was these details that made the shack even worse. And these details are, of course, that the shack is infested with small crabs <laughs> scurrying about the wooden floor. And so there's some fungus growing from the ceiling that is light tan and quite damp, and every few seconds, small drops of moisture fall from the fungus with a plop. Also, each tin wall was bright green with tiny pink hearts painted here and there as if the shack were an enormous tacky Valentine's Day card instead of a place to live. Like, the flora and fauna of this world is just never explained. No. They're not Why are there crabs? Also, I was just thinking this as I was reading. So Nero is Vice Principal Nero. We never meet the principal. Right? Nor is there ever any even acknowledgement that there is a principal. No. Nope. Like, he is in charge of the school, Vice Principal Nero. <laughs> it's amazing. But there is reference to something much more important than any living person, animal, or thing. And that is the lunch at Proof Rock Prep. <laughs> Please, dear listeners, allow me to take you to page 39. <laughs> Several years before this story took place, when Violet was 10 and Klaus was 8 and Sonny was not even a fetus, the Baudelaire family went to a county fair in order to see a pig that their Uncle Elwyn had entered in a contest. Why don't they ever get to live with Uncle Elwyn? Excellent question. Thank you. I have many good questions. The pig contest turned out to be a bit dull, but in the neighboring tent there was another contest that the family found quite interesting. The biggest lasagna contest. The lasagna that won the blue ribbon had been baked by 11 nuns and was as big and soft as a large mattress. Perhaps because they were at such an impressionable age, the phrase impressionable age here means 10 and 8 years old respectively, Violet and Klaus always remembered this lasagna and they were sure they would never see another one anywhere near as big. Violet and Klaus were wrong. When the Baudelaire's entered the cafeteria, they found a lasagna waiting for them that was the size of a dance floor. It was sitting on top of an enormous trivet to keep it from burning the floor, and the person serving it was wearing a thick metal mask as protection. 
so that the children could only see their eyes peeking out from tiny eye holes. And then, after receiving their lasagna, the orphans walked further down the line and helped themselves to green salad, which was waiting for them in a bowl the size of a pickup truck. <laughs> Next to the salad was a mountain of garlic bread, and at the end of the line was another metal-masked person handing out silverware to the students, who had not been inside the administrative building. This just sounds like Olive Garden to me. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, have you ever ordered the tour of Italy at Olive Garden? Because that's essentially a <laughs> dance floor-sized platter. I could happily dig into this meal. Yeah. They had me at Mountain of Garlic Bread. Yeah. (laughs) The only good thing about proof rock prep. Now I need to Google the actual world's largest lasagna. I'm doing it right now. Thank you. All right. The world's largest lasagna was baked in Poland, and it weighed 4,865 kilograms, which is the same as 5.2. Uh, 29 tons. Wow, you know who would have loved to measure that in the metric system? (laughs) Get Mrs. Bass to Poland ASAP. The dish the lasagna filled measured 25 meters, 82 feet by 8 feet and 2 inches. That's less impressive. And contained 5,511 pounds of pasta sheets, 1,763 pounds of mince. I guess that's meat. But you said mince with a T, like peppermints. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know who couldn't eat the lasagna? <laughs> the Baudelaire's. That is correct. 109 gallons of white sauce, 109 gallons of tomato sauce, 881 pounds of mozzarella. Oh my god. Oh, ew, there were peas in it. What? This is, why this you is sh- Polish lasagna. Yeah, sorry, Poland, you're canceled. If you Google world's largest lasagna, the picture looks fucked up. Can I see? Yeah, it's like mostly green. Green? Oh, are these peas? Oh, it's just covered in peas. Oh my God. (laughs) Sarah, look. What? Those are peas, peas and carrots. That's not a lasagna. I'm Googling Italy's largest lasagna. (laughs) But see, no one in Italy would ever be like, we have to make the world's biggest lasagna. You know, it's just not... You should search New Jersey's largest lasagna. You're right. You're right. That's the perfect blend of Italy and Poland. <laughs> There's a 50-pound, 60-layer lasagna in Fairfield. That's good. We dare you to eat it. Okay, NorthJersey.com. This is much better. <laughs> no peas, no carrots. Oh my god, it's so tall. It's... Yeah, it's taller, I get the impression, than it is anything else. Why is is it so tall? Uh, The main problem here is that no one has done a good lasagna proof rock prep style. And if you are listening, please, I am begging you to Google world's largest lasagna and look at the picture. Because it it looks like algae on a pond. Yeah, I thought it was like a natural... I thought I I was looking at earth. No. (laughs) Stick to pierogies, guys. Lemony Snicket is really good at picking a bit and sticking to it. Yeah, he is. And taking it just as far as it needs to go. And that is one way that his books are, I mean, obviously they're novels, but they also have something in common with, like, stand-up. Yes. Like, in a good stand-up act, you know, you'll get a joke maybe ten minutes later or five, that references back to the joke from earlier, and there's something really satisfying about that, and Lemony Snicket does the same thing. You'll think he's forgotten about this bit, and then he'll bring it back. So one in this book that he does is he talks about stalks of celery, 
So at one point, Violet says, if we're lucky, Vice Principal Nero will play something quiet at tonight's concert, and we can sleep through that as well. And then Lemony Snicket says, you can see with that last sentence just how tired Violet really was, because if we're lucky is not a phrase that she or either of her siblings used very often. The reason, of course, is quite clear. The Baudelaire orphans were not lucky. Smart, yes. Charming, yes. Able to survive austere situations, yes. But the children were not lucky, and so wouldn't use the phrase if we're lucky any more than they would use the phrase if we're stalks of celery, because neither phrase was appropriate. If the Baudelaire orphans had been stalks of celery, they would not have been small children in great distress. And if they had been lucky, Carmelita Spatz would not have approached their table at this particular moment and delivered another unfortunate message. So then Carmelita comes. She tells them that they have to do more sore exercises tonight. And then a few pages later, Klaus says to the Quagmires, if we're lucky, all of us working together can defeat Coach Genghis. And then Lemony Snicket says, there was that phrase again, if we're lucky, coming out of the mouth of a Baudelaire, and once again, it felt about as appropriate as if we're stalks of celery. The only difference was that the Baudelaire orphans did not wish to be stalks of celery. While it is true that if they were stalks of celery, they would not be orphans because celery is a plant and so cannot really be said to have parents, Violet, Klaus, and Sunny did not wish to be the stringy, low-calorie vegetable. Unfortunate things can happen to celery as easily as they can happen to children. Celery can be sliced into small pieces and dipped into clam dip at fancy parties. It can be coated in peanut butter and served as a snack. It can merely sit in a field and rot away if the nearby celery farmers are, la are lazy or on vacation. All of these terrible things can happen to celery, and the orphans knew it, so if you were to ask the Baudelaire's if they wanted to be stalks of celery, they would say, of course not. But they wanted to be lucky. So good. I know. So this book is one of the first to start putting heavy references on secrets that we will find out the answers to, or, and actually in most cases not find out the answers to throughout the series, but we'll see more reference to. At one point, Duncan and Isadora are talking about the research that they've done on Count Olaf, and they say, we figured that Olaf must have been an evil man even before he met you, Duncan continued. So we looked up things in old newspapers. But it was difficult to find too many articles because, as you know, he always uses a different name. But we found a person matching his description in Bangkok Gazette who was arrested for strangling a bishop but escaped from prison in just 10 minutes. That sounds like him, all right, Klaus said. And then in the Verona Daily News, Duncan said, there was a man who had thrown a rich widow off a cliff. He had a tattoo of an eye on his ankle, but he had eluded authorities. And then we found a newspaper from your hometown that said, I don't mean to interrupt, Isidore said, but we better stop thinking about the past and start thinking about the present. What the fuck, Isadora? <laughs> I don't mean to interrupt, but I have another couplet. <laughs> Shut up. Because you know we were about to get some news about the fire. Yeah, that is so annoying. All right, so now it's time for, and now a word from us kids, part two. So here are some reviews from Dogo Books written by kids for kids about the Austere Academy. This review comes from Jasmine, who said, I enjoy reading this book. I like the strategy of the author and also like the weird things that happen in the timeline. Although Principal Vice is a bad guy, I think in his deepest heart, he's the cutest person that Brothers Baudelaire's can meet. Even when they eat shrimps with their hands, they still have food. <laughs> There's more, hold on. 
touring orphan guys not always has to be like evil torturing like Principal Vice does. He, every day, give a recital for six hours. Everyone can hear how the violin strings are suffering. The sound is not bad. It's really bad. <laughs> Hope the author can keep writing about them. Love the book. Four stars. I think this is one of my favorite reviews we've ever read. Because... I think that this is almost certainly written by an English language learner. Yes. I do want to say that. So sometimes English language learners will come up with really interesting ways to say something because they're not as familiar with like our cliches or our more <laughs> pat phrases and so I really love the way that she, it's very poetic the way that she describes um everyone can everyone can hear how the violin strings are suffering that personification of the violin strings as being alive and suffering I think is so brilliant I love that it is really terrific I do have questions about Nero being, quote, the cutest person. Yeah, what? <laughs> the brothers Baudelaire's can meet. I'm, I'm sure they're going for torturing orphans. Does not have to be like evil. Oh. I get that. Mm -hmm. So they're saying you don't have to use evil torture methods. You can give a recital for six hours. I think that's great. Also, when do the Baudelaire's eat shrimps with their hands? I don't recall that. Wait! They're talking about when they have, they remember when they went to the river with their family oh, and they yeah. had sweet and sour shrimp. That's right. Very good, Jasmine. Good details. It's great. Yeah, I would say the only thing about this that I'm like, concerns me on the reading comprehension level is that in his deepest heart, Vice Principal Nero is the cutest brother, is the cutest person. Uh, Sarah, Principal Vice. Oh, yeah. Principal Vice is the bad guy. And I think in his deepest heart, he's the cutest person. What? Literally, Sunny is right there. <laughs> Sunny falls asleep in her salad, and Violet has to gently shake croutons out of her hair. And you're going to tell me that you think Principal Vice is, in his deepest heart, the cutest person? How dare you? <laughs> I'm also, from now on, I think I'm going to start incorporating, it's not bad, it's really bad. Because <laughs> that's a great description. I love that. It's not over the top. It's to the point. Yeah. CJK uh, has a similar thought, but does it in fewer words. The book is awesome. I always wonder if the vice principal is bad or not. Good book, though. I don't wonder. Yeah, where I'm shocked you do. Where is this confusion coming from? He doesn't... I guess we don't know that he's, like, allied with Count Olaf as a villain, and I don't believe he is, but... Yeah, I guess know, that's what they're wondering. We know definitively that he's a very mean man. Good book, though. If you haven't read the book, and then you read these reviews, you might get the impression that there's something about Nero that's redeeming. But there really isn't, you know? It's not like when we meet Aunt Josephine, and she's kind of nice and sweet, but also incompetent. Vice Principal Nero is just awful. He is not nuanced. Nope. And he's clearly written to only be the worst. Yes. He's not meant to be a morally gray character. No. He's... <laughs> the man has a tie with pictures of snails on it, which in this day and age could be considered cottagecore, but in 2003 <laughs> could only be meant to represent villainy. <laughs> All right. Do you want to read the next one or do you want me to do it? I can certainly try. All right. Whew. Fire J says, 
Violet Klaus and Sunny Baudelaire have gone through the worst, capital W, events in their lives. Their guardians have been no help, neither have their fortune manager, Mr. Poe. One of their guardians, parentheses Count Olaf, wants to get his hands on their enormous fortune, but has failed to do so. In this book, Count Olaf, in one of his disguises, tries to steal them and their new friends Duncan and Isadora Quagmire. This book contains interesting facts and unknown people. <laughs> this series was a real true story-based book. Hmm? <laughs> it has bright sides to it, but mostly dark sides. It's really addicting. The rest of the series is unknown where they lie. Five stars. Very ominous ending. It's true. I have no idea where they lie. <laughs> I'm not even sure what they, that means. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that I have questions about this series being based on a real true story. What story? I mean, some of the names are clear allusions, but I don't think that this book is based on Genghis Khan. <laughs> I could be wrong. It kind of harkens back to one of our reviews in the earlier episodes, which said that the book is very sad because some orphans in the world are treated in this cruel fashion. So I think we have some confusion about the line between fiction and nonfiction with this series, but that's all right. So this last one, first of all, let's start with the name because the name is great. Cute Hermie said, all caps, I loved it! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Truly into adventures, dot, dot, dot. Violet, Cloud, and Sunny is really like the best type I love. Type I love is hyphenated, so it's one word. Type I love. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. OMG! Exclamation point. I just hate Uncle Whatever. Five stars. <laughs> this is what the adults who read TTYL thought was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. OMG, I just hate Uncle Whatever. All right. So I found this article in conversation with one of the ones that we talked about in the last episode. This one is called Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, Daniel Handler and Marketing the Author by Kendra Magnusson, And it was published in Children's Literature Association Quarterly in spring 2012. And she responds to one of the criticisms that you'll remember our man Bruce Butt had in the last episode. <laughs> Bruce Butt said that the series, quote, Veers precariously close to the exploitation of a young reader's willingness to hear the same gag again and again and again. And he doubts that this is a device that we should applaud, as it is an easy way to satisfy undemanding readers. But Kendra Magnusson disagrees. She says, This characterization of young readers as unchallenging, exploitable consumers probably overestimates their vulnerability while underestimating series of unfortunate events crossover appeal. Countless readers, young and old, experience pleasure in the repetition of a familiar gag and have done so for centuries. Handler's repetition actually highlights the frustration that the Baudelaire's experience throughout the series, particularly in relation to their inept adult caregivers. Ironically, Butts' assessments... <laughs> Sorry. I don't know how old you have to be to not laugh after you say the phrase Butts' assessments... It's not 26. But I guess you have to be older than 26 because I can't get through it. All right. <laughs> Ironically, Butt's assessments, like those of so many of the adults who appear in series of unfortunate events, underestimate young readers' critical capacities. 
By contrast, Handler's acknowledgement of children as reflexive agents undermines the popular constructions of childhood. Handler's series offers a compelling contrarian commodity that appeals to many readers, young and old. Well said. Yeah. Terry and I kind of tried to make this argument last episode, but we, you know, we're not as... We did it worse. Yeah, we're not as good as Kendra here. But yeah, I agree. I find... I mean, I think that if all 13 books had the exact same plot structure, then yeah, that would get old. But it's really only the first six. Six. They veer off pretty wildly at seven. Mm -hmm. And as we've said, even within the first six, again, by book four, they're being raised by a lumber mill. So, no, I do not find this this approach to be trite or undemanding. And I 100% agree with Magnuson in her rebuttal of butt. <laughs> in her butt rebuttal. Really putting the butt in rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've talked in this episode and in the last one about how Lemony Snicket uses a lot of really interesting vocabulary and will often explain it to his reader. That's another aspect of Lemony Snicket's texts that Kendra Magnuson talks about in her article. She writes, Often, absurd diction diffuses tension for the reader. For example, in Reptile Room, just after the Baudelaire orphans discover Uncle Monty's corpse, Snicket describes the murderer standing there with a look of brummagem surprise on his face. By using an adjective unfamiliar to most North Americans, more typically describing imitation jewelry or the city of Birmingham, and rarely at that, Snicket provides comic relief from an otherwise traumatic experience. He then explains that brummagem is a rare word for fake that even Klaus didn't know. When the word is again deployed ten pages later, its notably awkward and out-of-place character once again relieves pressure, this time from the anticipation of a confrontation. He stomped over to where Mr. Poe was standing, but halfway there the children saw his face change from one of pure anger to one of brummagem confusion and sadness. Lemony Snicket's intrusive narrations encourage readers to be aware of his presence. As such, he is never absent from the text, nor is Handler distanced from the manipulation of meaning. Lemony Snicket is a very, very present figure in these books. He is. And it's true what she says about it. That reminding you of the narration and reminding you that this story is being told by a different person does separate you from an experience as horrifying as three children finding the dead body of a loved one. I think she's right. I think it's a kind of masterful move mm -hmm. on Snicket's part. Yeah, it's interesting because some writers, you know, take the approach that they want to make them, when they're writing fiction, want to take the approach of making themselves as invisible as possible so that you can really get lost and immersed in the world and almost forget that you're reading a book or, you know, that you're reading a constructed narrative. And Lemony Snicket really takes the opposite approach, which I think works obviously very well in these books. Seconded. Kendra Magnuson goes on to talk about how Lemony Snicket inhabits this teaching role in the books where he's trying to teach the readers not only new words and new expressions, but also some facts about life and what's fair and not fair and what happens, um, even though it's not fair. So Kendra Magnuson refers to this as Handler's ironic natural didacticism, and she says that it, quote, parodies the treatment of child readers just as they hate to be treated, and it's one technique that he understands as key to winning their allegiance. The enjoyment of such parody rests on a reader's awareness of the generic conventions of children's literature and an ability to compare them with Snicket's words. 
Handler expects high levels of cognitive work from his audience. By parodying children's literature, or rather his own depiction of it, Handler relies on sophisticated forms of humor that ultimately demand more from his readers than does the conventional fantasy he presents. So, and I think that makes sense because really in order to get the joke and in order to understand why these books are funny, you have to understand the ways in which they're so wildly different from almost anything else that's on the shelves in a children's bookstore. Mm-hmm. These books are completely unique. All right, so our next segment is The Book Was Better. Last episode, we talked about the series of Unfortunate Events film that came out in 2004. And today, we're going to be talking about the Netflix series that aired from 2017 to 2019. And there are three seasons, so it's a real deep dive into the series. The series was developed by Mark Hudis and Barry Sonnenfeld and stars Neil Patrick Harris, Patrick Warburton, Melina Weissman, Louis Hines, sorry, K. Todd Freeman, Presley Smith, Catherine O'Hara, Lucy Punch, Dylan Kingwell, and Avi Lake. And the series was very well received. The first season has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Season 2 also has a 94%. And then season 3 has a 100%. Ooh. Yeah. Received a lot of praise for its production values, writing, and faithfulness to the novels, and acting, particularly that of Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf. One of the key changes that Sonnenfeld and Handler wanted for the series was to make Lemony Snicket a more visible character, who's narrating on the adventures of the Baudelaire children from some distant point in the future and allowing him to be in scenes without actually being part of the events that are happening. Unlike the film, which didn't show much of Lemony Snicket at all, you never saw his face. He was a shadowy silhouette of a figure who you would see typing in some room, clearly uninvolved in these events as they're happening. Casting Patrick Warburton for Lemony was Handler's idea. Handler felt Warburton was an actor that could deliver comedic lines without being too obvious about it, as well as bringing the emotional breadth that the character needed to show. So I will say that I really like the inclusion of Lemony Snicket as a narrator and as a visible character in the series. I think that's satisfying. And it also allows for a lot of the really great lines in the books that didn't make it into the first movie because when you don't have this third person narrator commenting, um, then you don't have a, an avenue for things like explaining a mountain out of a molehill. But mm-hmm. Lemony Snicket, the character, is able to do that in the series, which I think is really satisfying. And I do think that the casting is fine. I mean, Patrick Warburton, I think, does a good job, and I think he. Yeah, he delivers comedic lines without being too obvious about it. He just doesn't look anything like how I pictured Lemony Snicket. He doesn't. I always pictured Lemony Snicket as being kind of, like, thin and gangly. And yeah. looking like Patrick Warburton is very, like, square-jawed. and He looks like an older John Hamm. Like, yeah, he does. There's 100%. A, there's a Don Draper quality to the Lemony Snicket in the series, which is just nothing like how I pictured Lemony Snicket in the books. You're right, I pictured him He as... seems more, like, frantic in the books and kind of a... Yeah, like, he should look messier. He should yes. be very pale. Like, he hasn't seen sunlight in a few months. Yeah, because he's described as being on the run all the time. Yeah. And... There's a nervousness. Yes. And an anxiousness that just isn't conveyed at all in the way that they cast him. Which is not to say that Warburton doesn't do an amazing job, because he absolutely does. Yeah. But it's true. It's just not quite how I pictured it. 
Yeah, so I will say, too, that I do think that the decision to make it a Netflix series, that that's a much better medium for this than film. Mm -hmm. You know, the first film felt kind of cramped and rushed in a way that the Netflix series doesn't. The Netflix series actually, in many ways, expounds on the books. Like, there's more plot, actually, in the Netflix series than there is in the books, especially in the early episodes, because we don't get introduced in the books to VFD until this book, until book five. But in the Netflix series, there's hints of that much, much sooner. I mean, Klaus finds the spyglass in the first episode, and that spyglass kind of becomes a symbol of VFD and the secrets that they're trying to find. So the storyline feels more thought out, I guess, for lack of a better word. Because Mm -hmm. when I read these early series of Unfortunate Events books, I don't even know that Daniel Handler knew about, like, knew that this secret society was going to end up being really important, you know? Yeah. And so the, the Netflix series almost acts as, like, a revision of his idea mm-hmm. and allows for a lot more foreshadowing, which makes it more satisfying. Although, I would say that the added structure and through lines in the series make the plot more satisfying because it feels more thought out and more cohesive. But it also, in my opinion, lessens, like, the disordered chaos and the postmodernism of the books because Mm. the series makes more sense. (laughs) You know, it's... You're right. It's It's true. It's still ridiculous. It removes a lot of the concerns that we have about VFD because when we are first introduced to the idea of VFD in the books, we don't know anything about this organization we don't even know that it is an organization we don't know if it's good or bad exactly and that i think is an important plot point the series and helps lead into the what is sort of one of the main themes of the series as a whole which is the question of morality and its many gray areas and i think that the netflix series misses a little bit in that because we're introduced to vfd so early on and they are clearly a force for good and that they are working to protect the children, that um, a lot of that uncertainty and tension is removed in that regard. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that the series is a lot less, the Netflix series is a lot less frightening than the books because you know from the beginning in the series that there's a network of adults who are working to protect the Baudelaire's and children like the Baudelaire's, like the Quagmire's. You don't know that in the books. Actually, we never really find that out, that anyone has been working behind the scenes to try to protect the Baudelaire's. You really get the sense that they are completely and 100% on their own, uh, which is a lot more terrifying. Exactly. And also, I will just say that, like, if VFD is really working to protect the Baudelaire's, they're doing a really shit job. Like, (laughs) how how hard can it be? Oh, my God. (laughs) And also one thing that's interesting, too. So the series kind of creates this network of adults who are in VFD, right? We get, like, Lemony Snicket and Larry, your waiter, and Mr. Poe has an assistant who's a new character. And there's a librarian at Prefrog Prep in the series who's not in the book. And so those are all kind of members of VFD or tangentially related to VFD, and they're working in tandem to try to protect the Baudelaire's. And then the villains are also a network that are working together. You know, like, for example, Mm -hmm. 
in the Miserable Mill book, Dr. Georgina Orwell, we don't know anything about her, but in the Netflix series, she's like fully in cahoots with Count Olaf. She used to be his lover. There's this implication that they're like on opposite sides of VFD and that she knew uh, the Baudelaire's parents and stuff and had beef with them. And so I also think that that kind of makes the bad people a little bit less terrifying because they're not just evil and hating these children for no reason, but they're, like, united towards a cause, which is presumably getting the Baudelaire's fortune. And so knowing the evil, knowing the nature of the evil, makes it less frightening. That's a really good point. There are so many adults who are introduced in the show who just really have no part in the books and it makes me wonder if it's in part because the show is for adults Mm -hmm. i have no idea but there's yeah there are many added characters and i 100 percent agree with sarah that i think that knowing that all these people have the bodler's best interests at heart and are out there moving around and are competent in a way that mr poe and aunt josephine are not is It doesn't fit with the original tone of the book, I feel. I don't think that it makes it a lousy standalone show, because it's absolutely not. But um, I do think that it is kind of missing that particular terrifying aspect of the books. Yeah. And part of that could also be that I consumed the series as an adult, and I read the books as a kid. Yes. If I were to watch the series when I was 10, I might find it terrifying. I don't know. That's a really good point. But I do want to, I do think that the casting is like overall really, really spectacular. I think it all the is. kids do a great job. I think Carmelita Spatz in book five is amazing. Carmelita is played by Katana Turnbull and she does an amazing job just being an absolute menace. So irritating. <laughs> and I, I think that Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf is great. I I will say, though, that the only thing about it that rubs me the wrong way is that you can tell that Neil Patrick Harris is really talented and Count Olaf is supposed to be a terrible actor. And so Neil Patrick Harris will occasionally, like, (laughs) sing or do performances. Or do fairly convincing accents. And it just isn't, like, Count Olaf because Count Olaf is not supposed to be talented at all. So that's one thing about it too and I will also say that I think that neither this nor the movie really capture how terrifying Count Olaf is because like Count Olaf is funny for sure but I would say he's more scary than he is funny in the books I agree and in the series I think he's way more funny than he is scary it's true and, and one thing about the series that's really fun is that it does incorporate more original music Count Olaf mm-hmm. sings some of the songs which is fun, but again, he's a good singer. So it's like... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, as a standalone show, it is really terrific. It's really, really special to see a book that you loved so much as a kid get such a thorough, thoughtful treatment. Yes. Because so often adaptations um, are disappointing. That's why this segment is called The Book Was Better, right? <laughs> <laughs> But I I think that this is something that really, really benefits from, like, long-form storytelling. It's It wasn't made to be films, and I'm really glad that it got, it's got a chance to be a series. Movies have natural endings in a way that the book series doesn't really. Right. 
that's why it lends itself, I think, so well to episodes. Mm -hmm. It's because every book ends like an episode. It ends with a cliffhanger and an expectation of more to come. And it makes perfect sense to film it as a series rather than as a movie. Because this book has this book. The books have no end. And the series doesn't really have an end. So it's as a movie, it is pretty unsatisfying. This is all true. I also love that they chose for every book, even the short ones, to break them up into two episodes. Yes. Except for actually the last book only gets one episode, but I think that's okay. But all the other books are broken up into two. And I just love the time that that gives them to delve in and really give a lot of the details that would ordinarily be cut. So someone else who really liked the Netflix series is Anna Leskiewicz. So she wrote an article in the New Statesman that was called How a Series of Unfortunate Events Went from a Children's Book to a Postmodern Masterpiece. This, she wrote this after the first season came out in 2017 about how the Netflix series had particular resonance given the current social, political, cultural climate. A series of unfortunate events are books for children plagued by a sense that the world really is relentlessly terrible. When you're a child, says Handler, if you begin to sense that the entire world is a strange performative sham, you don't lose that sense when you're an adult. Perhaps the world has never felt more like a strange performative sham than in the last year, and unfortunate's combination of incompetent bureaucracies, dishonest press, apathetic adults, and a tyrannical narcissistic villain who absurdly triumphs again and again seems to hit the spot. She read my mind. You got it, Anna. Now I want to take a few minutes to talk about all the illusions because these books are absolutely full of them. So an illusion is an implied or indirect reference to another literary work, historical event, or figure, or work of art. And most illusions are based on the assumption that there is a body of knowledge that is shared by the author and the reader, and that therefore the reader will understand the author's reference. What's interesting about a series of unfortunate events is that usually when you talk about illusions in literature, the success of the illusion is predicated on, like this definition says, that there's a body of knowledge that's shared by the author and the reader and that the reader will understand the author's reference because otherwise the illusion is lost on the reader. What's interesting about these books is that I would say probably like 85% (laughs) at least of the illusions are going to be completely lost on the kids reading them because they're illusions <laughs> mostly to literature that kids have not read. We talked earlier about Dr. Georgina Orwell, which is, of course, a reference to George Orwell. And some of the illusions, there's a clear reason for the connection. Like, for example, Vice Principal Nero is probably an allusion to the Roman Emperor Nero who is said to have fiddled while Rome burned, and Nero's reign is associated with tyranny, extravagance, and religious persecution. And so we can definitely see the similarities between Vice Principal Nero and Emperor Nero. And of course, Vice Principal Nero plays the violin. And Sarah, of course, mentioned Georgina Orwell, obviously being a reference to George Orwell. And this could also have a a clear purpose The idea that Orwell's hypnotizing Klaus could be a reference to George Orwell's 1984, which features the thought police who try to control the minds and thoughts of the citizens. The Netflix series takes this even further by making all the employees at uh, Lucky Smells be hypnotized, too. Another allusion in The Miserable Mill is 
the reference to the hospital that Phil visits. Ahab Memorial Hospital, where he's taken to recover from his leg injury, is almost certainly a reference to Captain Ahab from Moby Dick, who lost his leg in a whaling accident. And uh, the final illustration, The Miserable Mill, shows a sign shaped like a pair of eyes that are looking through eyeglasses. And it's reminiscent of the billboard of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg in The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel. Yes. And the Netflix series actually makes some more direct allusion to The Great Gatsby in the dialogue. Yeah. And speaking of allusions through the illustrations, one that seems so obvious to me now, but I honestly didn't pick up on it as a kid, is that the illustration on the cover of the Austere Academy is a reference to Oliver Twist, because we have Vice Principal Nero looking cruelly at the Baudelaire children while they hold up their their plates, their lunch trays, and presumably instead of asking for more, what is it, porridge that Oliver wants? Yeah. Please, sir, can I have some more? That That took all of my voice that was left. (laughs) So, listeners, that was actually Terry. I know you probably thought that we had hired a British orphan to come and read that line, but that was actually (gasps) Terry LaRue. She's so talented. But yes, instead of withholding porridge, Nero is withholding silverware. So that's another reference. We also, I think, can believe that Isadora and Duncan Quagmire's names are a reference to Isadora Duncan, who was the inventor of American modern dance. And she was strangled to death in a freak accident in France when her long flowing scarf became entangled in the wheel of the car in which she was riding, which is horrifying. Coach Genghis is obviously a reference to Genghis Khan. And there's a really great moment also in the Austere Academy when Isadora mentions that she writes poetry and Sunny shrieks, Sappho! And Sappho (laughs) was a lyric poet in ancient Greece. And of course, I completely missed this as a kid. Sunny actually has a lot of cute little dialogue moments that I think kids will largely miss. At one point, Isadora apologizes to her for something, and Sunny says something that I'm sure as a kid I read as Denida or something, but is clearly Denada. No (laughs) problem in Spanish. Proofrock Preparatory School is most likely an allusion to the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock by T.S. Eliot which is a very famous modernist poem that was published in 1915. At the time of its publication, Proofrock was considered outlandish, but is now seen as heralding a cultural shift from late 19th century romantic verse and Georgian lyrics to modernism. And so the poem is a dramatic interior monologue of an urban man who is stricken with feelings of isolation and an incapability for decisive action that is said to epitomize frustration and the impotence of the modern individual and represent the thwarted desires of modern disillusionment. That's a lot of big words. I think the best way to understand the poem is for me to just read you a little excerpt of it, which I really like. And for some reason, this excerpt just has Lemony Snicket vibes to me. So we'll see if you agree. T.S. Eliot says, But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, Though I have seen my head, grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. Ooh, I love it. Yeah. So I don't know, something about the word... I wonder if it's just the word snicker. I think it's the word snicker. 
And yeah. it's also like the the menace and mm-hmm. the, the feeling cruelty. that one is getting older and one is in danger. And it's pretty despairing. So Yep. All of that. A lot of the absurdity that we we get in these books. You can see a lineage of that in some of the references. So that's not an exhaustive list of the illusions, but I'm exhausted, so So we're going to put a pin in that discussion and talk about Beatrice and some of the other illusions in future episodes. Any lessons we can think of? People in charge do not always have your best interests in mind, and not all rules are (laughs) worth following. Yeah, actually, that is a really great point. I feel like this, the whole Austere Academy in particular is kind of like lampooning bureaucracy and academia and this idea that there are rules that need to be followed for no good reason, just because they're rules or because some tyrant in charge has decided. You know, the fact, for example, that like the Baudelaire's can't stay in the dorm because they can't get a permission slip signed by a parent or guardian (laughs) is just like so stupid. And what they're learning in school is absolutely useless. You know, I think you can kind of read what Klaus and Violet learn in school is like a metaphor for drilling kids for standardized tests or stuff, you know? Yeah, I can definitely see that. I guess the lesson is fight the power. Hell yeah. And workers should organize. Yep. Talk to other people, figure out what the people at your place of employment are making. And if you realize that you are all making coupons, then um, (laughs) kill someone. Yep. And ladies, if you find out that the men are making more coupons than you, you should file a lawsuit because equal coupons for equal work. (laughs) And children, if you find out that you are working at a lumber mill, that should be illegal. So maybe look into your rights. Go check out the Poultryville Constitution from your local library. Yeah. You can't miss it. It's one of three books. All right, is it time for a rating? So I've got to go for two ratings here because although the series as a whole to me is always just going to be a 10 out of 10 in my heart, individual books strike more of a chord with me than others. And while I love book four, it's definitely not my favorite out of the series, even though it is the goriest, which I appreciate, which is why I'm going to give it eight out of 10 coupons for beef jerky. Yeah, I think The Miserable Mill is... Great, but it's one of my, probably, if I had to rank them, one of my least favorites in the series. I think I've always found the hypnotism just a little bit of a stretch too far in terms of the rules of this universe. So I would give that one a 7 out of 10 coupons for beef jerky. Actually, no, my coupons are for buy two banjos, get the third free. (laughs) On the other hand, the Austere Academy, book five might be my favorite out of the series as a whole. If I were one of those annoying people who rated things out of numbers higher, if I did like an improper fraction, I would do that, but I'm not going to do that because that's obnoxious. (laughs) And then there are no rules whatsoever. And then nothing is real. Which is why, instead of 11, I am only going to give this book 10 out of 10 territorial snapping crabs. I agree. 10 out of 10 territorial snapping crabs for me as well. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Reading During Recess. 
we will have future episodes coming out where we discuss the rest of the series of unfortunate events books. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at reading underscore recess, or you can email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. Please tweet us or comment on our posts or send us emails or write reviews of our show on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you guys. And thanks, thanks so much for listening. And all you cake sniffers out there, stay reading.